0: Welcome to to
2: smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. Conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Temp here. Thanks for being here. I purposefully held this episode so that we could air it toward the beginning of the year. And the reason is so many of us look at the new year as a time to to change, to grow, to do the things we want to do in hopes of creating our quote-unquote best life. This podcast will most certainly, guaranteed, help you build your best life, and it will do it with the best data we have on how to create your best life. This week on the show, we are interviewing Dr. Mark Schultz on his brand new book, The Good Life. Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Mark is the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and the Sue Cardis Ph.D. Chair in Psychology at Bryn Mawr College. He received his bachelor's from Amherst, his Ph.D. from Berkeley. He's a practicing therapist. His postdoc training is in health and clinical psych at Harvard Medical School, Obviously, the dude is brilliant, but not only that, he is the director of the longest study ever conducted on happiness. And the details of this study and the way it's done are just as fascinating as the findings. And yes, we cover both. So as the year begins, I leave this interview to you. What can you pull from it? What can you learn about how you create your best life based on the data? This is one of those episodes you share. Anyone you know who's curious, they will want to hear this. So send it to them. Smartpeoplepodcast.gmail.com. Feel free to reach out. Let us know what you think. Let's get into it as we talk to Dr. Mark Schultz about his brand new book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Enjoy. And I was just kind of mentioning that I think everybody listening will enjoy this episode because at the core of what we do is how do we utilize the best information available to live our best life possible. And you made a really uh, concise but important statement. You said, I think that's the same for everybody. And so in digging into this idea of the good life, how much did you find this is kind of
1: everybody's goal at the end? Well, of course, we all define the good life in different ways, but i I think you know I've been trying to figure it out for much of my life, and many of the people that I know, both in my world of friends and also the people that I've been you know lucky enough to meet through the research that we do, I think we're we're as humans trying to figure out what the best path is in life, what the most fulfilling life will be for us. So um writing a book of about the good life, what it means to people and and how we get there. Um, was certainly really meaningful for for me and my colleague and collaborator that I wrote the book with. Um, but I think that's a question that everyone is asking, trying to figure it out.
2: Yeah. Well, and I, I have to start with one of your, I imagine, one of your day jobs, which um, is the associate director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And I love that title. I was very curious on it because we often hear of things like child development, childhood development, early childhood development. I think it's rare that adults think about their development. So tell us, in that role, what do you do? What do you
1: focus on? Yeah, such an important question. So this is a study, the Harvard Study of Adult Development, started in the 1930s. So it's a study that's followed the lives of 724 participants through their entire lives. So it's very unusual study, right? It started when folks were in their teen years It includes two very different cohorts of people, Um, about two-thirds of the original sample were boys that were growing up in the poorest neighborhoods in Boston, typically from immigrant families living in tenement buildings, often without running water or toilets. And then just down the street from these boys were a group of students at Harvard University that formed the rest of the sample. So they had a very different set of prospects in life. But we followed both of them forward uh, through their entire life and that allows us to ask really interesting questions that other studies haven't been able to ask like are there ways that we develop after our childhood years after our formative years do we stay the same do we change over time Um, if we change what are the ways that we do change and and what you know at, at different life stages what's important to us so we've been able to do that the study has followed people very closely. It's a trademark of the study. So intensive interviews from the very beginning, home visits to all the families of the participants in the study. We're now studying the children of the original 724 participants. So we have 1300 new participants that have joined the study in the last decade. So this is a a study of a very kind of intensive, close study of what it's like to live and, and how people flourish or find challenges in life.
2: That's incredible. So many questions around the study itself. One being, how do you convince people to sign up for something like this out of the goodness of their heart?
1: Yeah, so I've been doing psychology research for a long time, and recruiting participants is always a challenge. And we're trying to get as representative a group as possible. So you don't want, you know, some people say yes and some people say no. This study is unique. It started long before, obviously, I was born. Sure, um, and. Um, The way that they recruited participants is interesting, and I think instructive. So at Harvard, they asked the deans for recommendations of students that were doing okay and were likely to finish, and I think the Harvard students saw this as another token of their specialness, that they were somehow being selected. This was a study that was designed not to focus on problems in life, but to focus on why people were able to thrive. And I think the Harvard students thought, well, of course they want to study me. I'm important. Um, I'm going to be somebody that made sense to them. And then the inner city boys that were recruited, um, I think they had more questions. Why would someone be interested in me? It was really their parents that were consenting for their participation. Um, But the researchers were good. They went to the neighborhoods, they uh, spent time in people's living rooms, and they told people what the purpose of the study was. So the boys in these inner city neighborhoods were thriving in a different way. They were facing very tough challenges. Many of their peers had already gotten in trouble at school or with the law. And these participants were folks that were doing okay. These were kids that were doing well, despite the challenges of growing up in these very poor neighborhoods with all sorts of paths that could have taken them down a a kind of road in life that would have been much more difficult. So, you know, we were lucky to, to get these participants. And I would say, The other amazing thing about the study is the participation rate. So, you know, participation rates over 85% across 80 years is quite extraordinary and very unusual for a study. So we've tried to teach, to to treat participants with respect and dignity. Uh, One of the things we work very hard is to protect their confidentiality. Um, And um, I think people have appreciated in some ways the opportunity to participate in a study that has had some value to others. Um, And also, One of the things that we learned we late in life, we asked the participants, what's it been like? You know, what's been your experience of being in the study? And many of them talked about it being kind of helpful to check in about where their lives are are at at different points to reflect on their experience.
2: That is a great point. You know, so many of us, so many of us talk about our want and our goals towards uh, we are going to journal we're going to set clear goals, three, five, 10 year goals. We're going to have a direction, but we're only accountable to to ourselves. So we don't do that. Uh, what kind of things did you hear around the importance of this study on guiding
1: life direction and decision-making? Yeah. So people talked about this, this notion of checking in, being forced to kind of think about where they're at. And the the kind of questionnaires and the interviews happened at regular enough periods that they could anticipate it. So there was a kind of accountability probably for them that was really important. So they used the interviews particularly to kind of think about broader things, where they were in their life, what the kind of meaning of their life was, uh, were they doing things that were important. Um, it's a study also that never relied just on closed-ended questionnaires where you circled bubbles that were, you know, threes or fours. We really ask questions, some of them open-ended. More recently, we've recorded a lot of the responses, so we give people kind of a free opportunity to talk to us. Um, So I I think this was an important experience, and that's part of what motivated us to write the book, actually, was to bring these kinds of check-in tools and opportunities to hold yourself accountable and reflect on your experience to a much broader audience. People have told us that it was helpful to them. So some of the same questions we can share with the general public. And that's what we've done.
2: That's a great idea. Leveraging that to say, hey, here's the impact it had on others. Here's the impact it can have on you. When the study was originally designed and perhaps throughout the entire thing, uh, what was the primary goal? Was it just to understand the average growth throughout life or were there targeted things that you were looking to, uh, you know, uh, answer?
1: So there were a ton of questions, right? When you do science, particularly with a, a, a sample, that's this valuable that you followed over such a long period of time, lots of questions. But the thing that distinguishes the study from the beginning is they were interested in the question of human thriving. So this was during the thirties that the study started, the kind of rise of fascism in Europe was happening. There were similar trends in the United States that we don't talk about that were influencing science as well um and the folks that started this study were really interested in the question that if we studied people who were kind of normal that weren't identified because they were having problems and we followed them forward could we understand some of the reasons why they flourish so this was a study that was designed from the very beginning to understand what contributes to good things in life um, and that's really important very different than most of the studies that were happening at the, at this time and it's a little bit like you know lots of interest in positive psychology these days this was an early version of positive psychology quite remarkable for the 30s
2: the question i'm going to ask i imagine you have some bias behind it but i also know you know as a psychologist and what you do you you can you're probably pretty good at quelling that bias can you imagine any other more important study than this at its core you know if we can answer the question what leads to a
1: quality life. Uh, what else matters? Yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting question to think about. You know, it's sort of a kind of a philosophical question. So the question of a good life is something that, you know, we've been as a, as a kind of human beings have been focused on for, you know, thousands of years. So if we look back and we talk about some of this in our book, if we look back at sources of ancient wisdom, philosophers, religious leaders, and Um, You know, there's a lot of discussion about what makes life meaningful and what, you know, gives us a kind of joyous and fulfilling life. So I think this is clearly an important question. As a scientist, what I want to say is no one study answers all questions. So this is a remarkable study. It's followed people from 724 families across. Now it's kind of going on nine decades Um, But no study is representative of all human beings, nor can it answer all questions. So one of the things that we try and do when we talk about the findings from the study is to put them in the context of other studies. So, yes, I think this is one of the most important questions we ask. um, But no single study can answer the question that we need to do this in conjunction with studies that happen in China China and in Poland and in the Ukraine. Um, you know, we need to think about how universal some of this, some of these findings are, how universal some of these experiences are. The study was fairly unique in, in starting with people from very different walks of life. I mean, just think about how different the prospects were for these poor kids from these inner city neighborhoods in Boston, many of whom were learning English, and the students just down the block that were at Harvard with the uh, you know, whole world at their disposal, essentially. Um, So the fact that we see commonalities and the kinds of findings we talk about in the book across the two samples is a good sign, but we don't stop there. We're interested in seeing how universal these findings are. The original sample was all men. Obviously, our newer samples, the children of the original participants, so it's it's women and men. Uh, But we look hard to find for studies that show the same signal, the same signal of findings. And that signal is replication that's so important for science.
0: This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use rocket money and it does all of that for me. Rocket money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest they'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com
1: slash smart. I think I read JFK was in the original group. Is that true? He was. There are two people who have kind of outed themselves from the study, so we would never talk about the participants, but JFK was one of the original participants. So there were three classes at Harvard, and he was one of the participants in the study. Yeah. So we do talk about, you know, studies included presidents, including him and senators and U.S. representatives and other important leaders. And very normal folks that live, you know, simple lives.
2: Of course, we're going to dig into as much as possible. The thing that keeps jumping out at me, when you look at these two separate groups, what surprised you about the similarities despite their differences?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to talk about this in a weird way. I'm going to start with a Go story. And the story the story is that um, I teach at a women's college. And it's a women's college that has, it's a very diverse place. Students come from all over the world. And I've had students that have come from Asia or South Asia who are interested in doing research with me and interested in learning about how early experience can shape later experience. So I say, terrific. This is the study that I helped run. Why don't we take a look at some of the data together and we'll think about a question I'm not sure I'm interested in people who grew up in the 30s or the 40s or men who might have very different experience or white guys who might have very different skin color than me. I said, well, why don't you read some of the cases and then we'll talk about it. And we describe one of these examples in the book. So students will come back and they'll say, this is incredible. Like I, I imagine their lives to be so different than my own. But when I read about their experiences and get beneath the surface of who they are, they're struggling with the same things that I was struggling with in my 20s, trying to figure out, you know, what my lot in life, trying to find a meaningful path in life. So um, this is a long story, but the short message is that we, we find at a basic level of humanity so many commonalities that we wouldn't have expected. So, of course, privilege has its benefits. The Harvard students ended up living um earning salaries that were on the level of sort of twice, more than twice as much as the inner city boys. So they lived a life of privilege compared to them. The Harvard students also lived longer on average 10 years. That's a big gap in living that has to do with socioeconomic circumstances and education benefits. But if we look at core psychological variables like how important connections are, we find exactly the same connections across both samples. And that's what led us to write the book, that if we look at a deep enough level, if we look at things that are critically important to us in terms of our psychological flourishing, there are some real commonalities across groups of people that we might think are very different. And they are different on the surface of things. So uh, I think there's a a good story here about the common humanity that we share um, with a recognition that, of course, privilege brings certain benefits that aren't available to those that don't have that privilege.
2: Yeah, I mean, what's really uh, fascinating about it is, of course, when you think about longevity, for for many people, that's a, a, a huge goal, is how do I live as long and as happily as possible, right? So that being a key differentiator but when you remove that, it seems like being human, at least based on the study, is outwardly very different, inwardly very much the same, you know, like almost very different ways of experiencing the same thing, which is so odd if you really pause and think about that.
1: I think it's extraordinary. I mean, it, it's, it's, a. Uh... I'm fascinated by people. It's part of the reason I became a psychologist, part of the reason I do this kind of research. But if we really work hard to try and understand the experience of others... Oftentimes what I find is that people that we dismissed or we thought were kind of weird or unusual or unhappy for no reason, that when we get in their head, we understand them in a way that it makes sense to us. And when things make sense to us, it's often because the experience isn't that different than our own experience at some very deep level. So I'll give you one other example. Um, the Harvard men were, uh, came of age during World War II. So they were born during the depression. They came of age during World War II. About 91% of them served in the military during World War II. Most of them volunteered, which is an extraordinary idea to, to you know, folks that grow up today. And, and many of them will talk about their war, war experience with two very different ideas that they hold at the same time. And I love this. They'll say, it was the worst and hardest thing that I ever did doing combat service, uh, being exposed to the, you know, the threats of, of dying uh, and seeing comrades die. But it was also the best experience they they also had. And they they talk about it being the best for two reasons. One is that the connection that they had with others, the ways in which they were able to trust and put their hands, their lives literally in the hands of others, um, really important experience. And they had connections that were vital to them for years after the war that were really important. But the other part was there was a sense of purpose, that the world felt like it was falling apart. They felt like they were doing something that was really important and saving it. So these young men in their early 20s went to war, faced the prospect of death, and talked about this experience as both the best and the worst experience of their lives. It's quite extraordinary.
2: That actually makes me think of something, this idea of grit, toughness. I'm wondering if the group with the lower socioeconomic status, did you find that they, one of their advantages was they developed the ability to to deal with struggle better? Therefore, they might be able to honestly deal with life better. Something I've always been curious about.
1: Yeah, this is something that's been interesting for me too. And I've wondered about it in, in this study and other studies that I've done. And what I'll say is, If you step back and you look at the two cohorts, um, there are folks that are successful in both cohorts and there are folks that live lives that are unfulfilling and not particularly successful by any measure. So I think background um, has an impact, again, on the nature of opportunities that you have. But if you step back and look at the big picture, there are paths to flourishing and to success that are possible for both of those groups. Your question, though, is about whether a little bit of adversity helps us build character. And I think that is a message in the study that we we tend to, particularly today, when many of us are able to live a life in which we don't have to worry about feeding ourselves and shelter, that we have a certain degree of comfort in life that historically wasn't present. And this cohort, again, was born in the 20s and 1910s life was less secure lots of babies were were dying uh, either early or during later childhood so they were exposed to more insecurity war happened and it happened again fairly quickly Um, and i think what we find is that uh, folks that had experiences in which they were challenged they often grew in ways that were important and these are challenges that don't occur early early in life like i think that period of time is different in terms of the impact of challenge But as young adults or later adults, when they face challenges, many of them learn new things uh, uh, as they went through the challenge, learn new things about themselves, developed a certain kind of confidence in knowing that they can overcome challenges or loss. So I think that idea that we grow through challenge is an important one. And of course, the groups are roughly equal in the number of challenges that they talk about. The challenges look very different. So in the inner city group that's about poverty and you know, food scarcity and lack of opportunity. But the Harvard group will talk about family challenges and the loss of a sibling or the loss of a parent when they were young. So we may face different kinds of challenges, but they often present the same, both actual challenge, but also the opportunities for growing. So I I think the thing you're thinking about, really important question.
2: Yeah, well, and something you said there, uh, you'd be a perfect person to ask based on the study, which is, I'll never forget, I think it was a guest told me, that you cannot compare traumas. You know, people often say they have a disease, right? But it's not terminal. And they'll say, well, I I feel this way, but I kind of feel guilty because that person has this and that person has this. What you said makes me believe that idea of you can't compare traumas because would you say that those perhaps in the higher socioeconomic group would still experience difficulty the same way, although that difficulty may appear different on the outside.
1: Yeah, I think the nature of the challenges can be different on the surface, but deeper down, it's the same uh, types of psychological challenges. So when my students go back and they look and they say, well, these Harvard students, they were so privileged, you know, they must not have faced particular challenges. And why don't you read a little bit about their lives? And, you know, what you find is that, People were dying. People experienced loss at much greater numbers earlier in their life than we do as a generation. So, um, you know, many students will will go through their entire, up to their sort of mid-20s, not knowing what it's like to to lose someone, to to know someone close who dies. If you grew up in the 1910s and 20s, people died around you. Siblings died. People died in childbirth. So exposure to um, adversity, Certainly, had a, it was impacted by the nature of the environment that you grew up in, but knowing that a loss is a loss, um, being able to recognize that when you're close to someone, what that experience feels like, the gut punch, that it feels like when you lose someone who's so close to you and how long it can take to mourn that person and what the right pathway forward is, those are things that most people get to know at some point. The actual experience might feel differently. It might be because of, you know, things that have to do with our lot in life or dangers that we get exposed to. So the poor inner city kids grew up in areas, for example, where there's much greater exposure to lead and other toxins. So those kinds of physical challenges, um, less likely to be experienced by the wealthier part of the sample. Um, but everyone knows what it's like to worry about bodily harm uh, at some point that's you know w- we all get exposed to that whether it's through driving or through a bad incident that we have with another person um, so i think again at a, at a at a level beneath the surface i'm not sure i would agree with that idea that all traumas are unique that that there's a kind of set of traumas that create certain kinds of psychological strains that are pretty common. And, and as a therapist, we rely on that knowledge, right? If someone comes to us and says, you know, you probably haven't had this experience, uh, but this is what's happened to me. And it's, you know, it's destroyed my life. Um, it's likely I haven't had that experience, but it's likely that I've listened to other people who have had experiences that are similar enough or myself, I can experience what that might be like in a peripheral part of my life as opposed to a central part of their
2: life. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. There was something else you said that made my ears perk up, which was experiencing challenges early on in life might not have the same benefits as a little bit later. Was that something that came through in the studies or is that more your work in psychology?
1: No, we definitely have research that suggests that in our study, and it's it's a common finding across all studies. And I just want to clarify for listeners, because I think it's important we're not advocating people go out and find adversity. It's not the best pathway to growing, Uh, but adversity will find you likely in life. Life is filled with challenges. And really, we grow when we can meet adversity with resources. Resources are things that we have that allow us to cope. So it's personal resources, the support of others. So it's not just exposure to challenge or adversity, it's exposure to challenge and adversity with certain resources at our disposal. But when we're younger, when we're children or infants, young children, we're particularly vulnerable. And I think that trauma and adversity during that period, there are critical things that are happening. And this is an area of very active research, um, whether certain kinds of traumas affect the brain in certain ways that make it very difficult to recover from. So early traumas we know are important. Uh, We've done some research in our study looking at early childhood adversity and how it affects how people respond to stressors. We, we uh, expose people to stressors in the lab. The common stressor that psychologists use is a kind of public speaking task with extra scrutiny with cameras in front of you. And most people get a little bit stressed out by that, more than a little bit. Um, so we've been able to link early childhood adversity to greater difficulty dealing with those kinds of challenges in the lab. And that's a finding that's common to much research that's going on. So early adversity, very hard time okay. to overcome. You're really dependent on others.
2: Okay. How much of an impact do parents have on the long-term life experience of their children?
1: Yeah. So that's a good follow-up to what we've been talking about. And and because we follow people for so long. What we see are connections across very long periods of time. So there appears to be a long reach, uh, but I want to put that in context at the end. So what we did is we looked at the relationships that folks had in our study in the 1920s and 30s with their parents. So It was the quality of their family environment, how warm it was, how consistent and present their parents were. And we looked very late in life, we looked sort of 60, 70 years later, what was the nature of their connections with their partners? So these were people who had an intimate partner, they were in their eighties. And what we found is that folks that grew up in warmer, more consistent, more structured, predictable childhood environments had closer and stronger connections with their partners late in life. And that's across six, seven decades, which is a remarkable connection across time. What's important, to think about, Chris, is that the reasons for that connection are probably complicated. So some of it is probably genetic, that there's genes that run in families that probably have to do with good connections early on and later. We don't think that's all it is, though. That We also did some analyses that suggested to us that one of the mechanisms for connecting early life with later life functioning in close relationships is the way that we regulate our emotions, the ways that we deal with emotions that we have or challenges that we have in our life. And what we found is that people who had better childhoods dealt with emotions in a way that was different than folks that had more difficult childhoods. And the way that it was more adaptive is that they tended to lean into negative emotions. So they tended to acknowledge negative emotions and challenges in their world. And they did this in a way that was consistent with the nature of the challenge. It didn't distort the nature of the challenge or deny it in any way. And equally important, it allowed them to access the support of others in their network. So if we don't talk about a problem we're having, we can't take advantage of this magic pill that relationships present that help us get through challenges. So folks that had better childhoods, seem to lean into challenges more and be able to talk about them in a way that drew in other people and helped support them.
2: Yeah, it's almost like one of the primary things that parents do is model relationships. I have two kids, and so I think about how one of the primary things I do is teach them how to exist in the world. But it's almost like, yes, of course that, but think about the the primary thing they're witnessing is how I interact in a group, in a group setting, in a familial setting. And that is one of the primary instructions that they get.
1: Absolutely. So critical. So we talk a lot about the the, the ways in which parents, they both provide a model in the way that you're suggesting and in some ways, it's even more vital uh, as parents, you get in there, you can think about an infant that's, that's crying. You get in them in there and soothe that infant in a way that helps calm the infant. And you're teaching the infant some skills about the ability to calm oneself and soothe oneself. Eventually you want that to become something that the infant or child can do for him or herself, that you don't want to always have to be the one that calms the child externally but we teach them by modeling. We also teach them directly how to calm their bodies, how to feel secure in situations that are not familiar. So you have kids and you go to a playground and there are noisy kids around, and if the kid's young enough, they're gonna look back at you and you know, say, dad, is it okay? You know, can, I, can I go to the playground or should I stay with you? Um, and parents handle this differently, but we're teaching kids in that moment um, whether exploration is good when there's uncertainty, or whether staying close and being cautious is the appropriate path forward. So yeah, we have lots of ways that we can teach kids about their path forward.
2: Mark, I'm gonna tell you a, a statement I have often made, and I want you to tell me in all of your wisdom, research, and background, how true or false you think this statement is and why. I've long said that it's harder to screw up children than you think as a parent, but once you reach the tipping point you can screw them up extremely badly. What do you think about that?
1: I think there's a lot of that that I would say is is holds some truth that as parents we worry about every little thing that we do and wanting to do the the right thing. So we read books, we ask for advice, we obsess about exactly. doing things the right way. And part of it isn't just the specifics, it's, it's really, are we present? Are we there for our kids? Are we interested in their experience? Are we able to pay attention to them without getting distracted by our phones and work? A real challenge for people these days. So there's a kind of meta issue that's beyond the specific behaviors. That's really our engagement as parents that's really critical. I and mean, that's part of love in the book. We argue that attention is one of our most important forms of love. It's a, a precious resource. And I I think what kids need is our attention, our protection, and our willingness to let them learn things, to help them learn things. The other side of what you said is also important, that there's probably a tipping point where we can mess up. And boy, you know, yeah, kids can really get messed up by the actions of their parents. They can struggle with that for years. Um, So the stakes are high in that way. Um, But I know, and you probably know, as it sounds like the dad of young kids, Um, you know, you look around and there are a lot of parents that are distracted from their role. It's hard for them just to be there with their kids. And that's a societal challenge that we have. Um, you know, I work hard. I have a job. I have a few day jobs. You talked about, you know, the study. I'm a professor. I do some therapy work. Um, and my kids know that I've worked hard, but my kids also know that I, I will be there. Um, and that I am there for them. And that's a really important message to say.
2: Yeah. That's a great, great, uh, kind of way to distill that, you know, the attention piece. So we've got about 20 minutes left and I know if I downloaded this episode, I I would love the conversation. But if, if we left without really asking, I'm going to call you Yoda in this scenario, right? Without asking Yoda, how do I make the best life? So uh, I want to dig into that. Let's imagine I'm your son. I'm about 16 years old. So I'm not White really into adulthood, but I'm I'm figuring out my way. And you could only tell me one piece of advice out of all this research. What would it be?
1: Yeah, such a good question. And and what I want to say is partly why it's such a good question is that we do want to think about the differences across the lifespan. So a 16 year old, I would say something different certainly to my son than I might say to someone who's 60 years old. So at 16, I think what's important about the good life is thinking about what's important what what you think 16 year olds and adolescents really worried about moral questions and doing the right thing so what do you think is important um i think it's really important to help people i think the environment is in a crisis i i really want to do something about it. that's terrific that you have that passion can you imagine a way as you progress through high school maybe go to college that you can do that kind of work um, and when you do that work can you imagine doing it with people that will also excite you and you'll enjoy being with. So one of the messages from the book is that, you know, finding your 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 path in life, finding meaning and purpose in work, really important. But work itself is also important as a source of connections for us. Um, and I want my 16-year-old to be thinking about the connections he currently has and that I hope he'll have in the future. So... Um, What about your friends? What are they thinking about doing? Where do your friends fit in with what you imagine in the future? So I want them also to nurture the relationships in their life. Um, And that includes their friends. I'll also say my kids are unusual unless they're older now they're in their twenties. Um, you know, did you call your grandparents recently? Did you talk to them? Uh, They were 16 years old at one time. um, And I think you'd find it interesting talking to grandma about her decisions about work and career and family. Um, Have you ever asked her about that? I bet she'd be willing to talk to you about that. So, that would be the kind of conversation I'd have with my son, and I did have as, as they were growing up. I have two boys.
2: I can imagine. So they get to ask Yoda all the questions about... <laughs> well,
1: yeah. So certainly to them, I'm far right. from Yoda. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I can imagine. Yeah. You know, you, you said something interesting, which I, I wouldn't have thought of, which is this advice changes as we age. What kind of things did the study reveal about the way we think differently as we age about what a good
1: life is. Yeah. So this relates to a question we talked about earlier, Chris, that the field of adult development is a relatively recent one in psychology. We used to think that it was just kids that developed and studies like ours that have followed people through adulthood. We realize that people change. So one of the remarkable things that I think your listeners might be surprised, I was surprised when I read the research. If we look at how happy people are across the lifespan, It turns out as you get older from middle age until late life, people get happier. So old people turn out to be among the happiest people at any age. And that's a remarkable thing when we think about the challenges of aging, right? We have to deal with the specter of death. We have to deal with our bodies changing and and having more problems, our friends passing away. So... There's some remarkable things that you notice when you follow people across adulthood. And I think our life stages are important, that uh, in our teens, we're trying to figure out meaning and purpose and big questions. In our 20s, we're kind of trying to pursue a path in life that's meaningful for us in terms of work. We're trying to figure out our way in intimate relationships and whether that can be a part of our our experience or not. And things change. In midlife, we may be stuck in a rut, feeling like there's some predictability in our life, but it's also boring in a way that our life has lost some of its meaning. Uh, Later in life, really important to feel like you're connected to the world in a way that people will remember you, that you'll leave a legacy. And for a lot of people, what that means is they lean into doing things for younger people, mentoring or guiding them or having conversations with their grandkids about what the old days are like. So as we age, the things that are most important to us change, our perch changes in a certain way. And that's part of what we mean by these sort of generational divide and the friction that comes with that but it's also an opportunity to connect, right? So, so interesting that, that I'm teaching at a university, 20 year olds have very different worldviews than I do about certain things. And one of the great things about teaching is I get to learn about those views and why they hold views that are very different. So it's an opportunity for us to learn about each other.
2: It kind of touches on one of the themes throughout the book is the importance of relationships. Uh, Could you tell us about some of the surprising things you realized about It's not just a nice-to-have. It's literally almost built into our DNA, seemingly.
1: When we started this research, and even before I was involved in the study, the study began to find a connection between well-being and relationship success. And well-being, I'm talking about psychological well-being. And that's not maybe that surprising. If we look at the ancients, whether it's uh, philosophical traditions or religious traditions, people talk about how important relationships are, how important being part of a community, something larger than you. What was surprising to us were the number of findings that we started to accumulate and other research also began to show as well between relationships and physical well-being. So in our own research, we found that relationships help people Uh, go through difficult medical challenges with less experience of pain. We find that close relationships predict better memory function when people are in their 80s, so it may protect uh, protect people against some cognitive decline. Um, A number of other studies have shown the ways in which relationships literally get under our skin and change our inflammatory processes and our immunological responses to disease So we're finding more and more the ways in which relationships affect our physical health and our cognitive health, our brain health as well. And I think, you know, with hindsight, maybe not surprising, but as these findings accumulated, they really surprised us. We weren't sure that, you know, our findings were right Were other labs finding it. In fact, other labs were finding it. And when we think about it now, the part that makes sense to us is that if we think about our close relationships, and and I think the best example is if you think back to that first romantic connection that you ever had, and you can remember that feeling in your body, maybe it was associated with the first kiss that you have, it's a kind of jolt of energy that's associated with emotion that pours through our body in ways that are quite recognizable to most people. And then on the other hand, we can think about the times when we're very stressed. And again, we can feel that in our body. So it's very clear that relationships can be a vehicle for transmitting those kinds of emotions that affect our body and it's, its functioning. So we're finding, I'll give you one other example, we're finding in recent research we've done, if we look at relationship adversity, so challenges in relationships, it could be the experience of loneliness or it could be difficult experiences early on we find that it's connected with a particular epigenetic pattern. So epigenetics is how our our genes get expressed or they stop getting expressed at different points in our life. And the epigenetic expression patterns are really important. So the genes that are turned on are genes that are associated with more inflammation. And the genes that are turned off are genes that are associated with our body's ability to fight bacteria and viruses. Wow. stress particularly relational stress has an impact on inflammatory processes which we know are bad for us and it has an impact on our ability to fight uh, you know invaders microbes and viruses and things like that I mean it's incredible yeah. we
2: you know not that we're geneticists but you could almost imagine a world in which the reason for that is evolutionary like those of us who are better at making, creating, maintaining, nurturing relationships, are better off procreating. So if if they can live longer, they can procreate more. That would make sense. I don't know if it's proven, but, you know.
1: Well, it's hard to prove these kinds of genetic arguments, but that's the argument, and I believe it. And, you know, if we think about it, it goes back even earlier than that, that we're social animals, because our survival depended on it, right? We needed to come together to provide shelter and protection from the things that were hunting us in the wild. So that very early on, we were selected for people that were able to cooperate socially. And that sort of pressure is still with us. It's not that ancient in terms of our evolutionary timeline. Um, and I think that's part of it. That's what people invoke when we think about the, the the significant public health risk that we associate with loneliness, right? So if you look at surveys of many cultures, including our own in the US, um, 20 to 40 something percent of people report being lonely. And loneliness is associated with premature aging and dying. Um, and it's a Public health risk on the order of smoking and obesity, we now know, so that it has similar kinds of risks. And this probably is connected to what you are bringing up—that sort of genetic push towards being social creatures.
2: That's incredible. I've I've heard the argument, but I've never really thought as deeply about the reasoning behind it, which is pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, I was just going to add that one of the things. This is the fun part of writing a book and stepping back and thinking about you know, why is it that relationships are so powerfully connected to physical health? And I think you could make a list. And at some point I wanna do this. I I could probably get up to about a hundred reasons why relationships might have some benefits for health, right? So there are obvious ones that we all think about, that we often have people that we just experience our greatest joys with, they're fun to be with, we laugh and, and just feel relaxed in a way that we're not with other people. That's good for our bodies. It helps us recover from stress. Um, when we're stressed, people help us in so many ways that we don't fully recognize. They help us deal with our feelings. They call us out when we're doing silly things, they know stuff that we don't know. So they provide a pathway forward. So I feel like, you know, there's a, there's a scene in the Cyrano, the original, uh, work and also in the movies that depict this where he talks about, you know, it's a kind of response to being insulted because of the length of his nose and he comes up, it's a, it's a Steve Martin rule in a, in a movie. It comes up with 10 better insults than someone else comes up with. And I want to under pressure, come up with a hundred ways that that relationships can be that magic pill that helps us move forward with our health. I think there's so many ways and they're not recognized enough by people.
2: All right, I'm waiting on that book, Mark. When you write it, you're (laughs) coming back, okay? Um, A couple of things here. One is, what commonalities did you find are happening in people's thoughts? So, you know, we can't see other people's thoughts, but you all obviously uh, got as close as possible to, to hearing multiple people's thoughts. What were some of those similarities?
1: Yeah. So one example I can give you, Chris, is when when folks were later in their life, in their 80s, we asked them, we we did a study that we call a daily diary study. And this has to do with the kind of methods that we use. So because folks were in their 80s and not necessarily Internet or or, um, phone friendly. uh, We called them every night and we asked them to give us details about what their day was like, um, who they were with, what they were thinking, what some of the challenges were like. And each night we asked a kind of bigger question. And one of the nights we asked them about regrets. Um, And it was quite remarkable to hear the regrets of these octogenarians. So very few people talked about, I wished I had spent more time at work and really pushed for a particular kind of achievement. Instead, the common response was, I wished I had leaned more into the connections that I had. I wished I had spent more time with friends Had not let relationships wither in the way that I did. I wished I had been kinder to people in my family or to my wife or to my partner. Um, So people talked a lot about wishing they had spent more time investing in connections and wishing that they had done it with greater intention and gentleness as part of what they talked about. There was another theme that that was prevalent, which is a lot of people talked about, and this is older people with wisdom talking, I think. We accumulate this as we get older, wishing they had spent less time when they were younger Worrying about what other people thought about it. Oh, I were can doing. imagine. Yeah. I can only imagine. You know, which brings me to
2: this many of these things people either intuit or have heard, right? That they've been given this advice. Why is it that we have all these ways of knowing this? We have your study, we have our parents, we have our grandparents, we have our intuition. Yet many of us still make the same mistakes
1: around doing things that we think make us happy and don 't so i 'm going to give you two reasons one is that we're we, we know from lots of research that we 're not the most rational creatures that we don 't always <laughs> make the decisions that are right for us and that 's particularly true in this place where rationality is a funny thing to talk about so we talk psychologists talk about uh, the fact that humans are poor affective forecasters so affective forecasting is what 's going to make us happy and i 'm going to give you one good example of this there's a, a famous study that was done by researchers at the University of Chicago. And what they're interested in is the benefits that people get from talking to casual acquaintances or even strangers. So what they did is they caught people on their commute in Chicago, busy, busy city, before they got on a bus or a train, and they said, What do you think would happen if you talk to a stranger on your commute? And almost everyone said, oh, I don't wanna do that. It would make me miserable. I just wanna be alone. I wanna sleep. I wanna listen to music. I wanna listen to a podcast, read a book. I don't wanna deal with anyone else or do work. That was the other thing they said. So they said, okay, we're psychologists, we're cruel. Um, We're gonna give you randomly an assignment to do. Uh, You can do as you usually do, which is not talk to folks. Some of you are gonna randomly assign to talk to people. And then they caught them at the end of the commute and they got off the bus and the train. And the people who are randomly assigned to talk to strangers, they reported, lo and behold, that they were happier, that they found it kind of a jolt of energy talking to someone that they didn't know. And they felt like they were going to work with a different kind of posture and outlook than they had um, typically where they were focused more inward. So one idea uh, about why we don't do what's good for us, even though we keep hearing it from different sources, is we're not very good about applying it to our own lives, that we're not good at forecasting it. The other idea, which is important, and I think so important we talk about the good life, is that relationships are complicated and they're messy and they're unpredictable. And when we love someone, there's also the threat that we can lose that person. So they're scary in all sorts of ways. So the good life isn't always about experiencing joy and happiness. It's about having a meaningful life in which we're engaged with others, that we really need to take that chance to be vulnerable. So I think people get scared, and I totally understand that. Totally understand that.
2: I just had this revelation. And again, you might just know it, but I I just interviewed somebody not too long ago, and we were talking about the human body is lazy, wants wants to preserve energy. So if you start thinking about it from a physiological perspective, if we want to preserve energy, our brain has more area dedicated to survival protection than the others maybe that's one of the reasons. take your example we might logically know that talking to somebody on a train is going to make us happier but the part of our brain that's larger and more powerful says you don't know them maybe it's dangerous it's extra energy it's um there's You're no certainty like there's or no predictability like exactly. yeah they can judge yeah. me so it's it's preservation of self-safety that prevents us from truly thriving to an extent
1: i think i think that's right on that there are all sorts of risks that we take when we talk to strangers but it's not just strangers right it's in our intimate connections with our partners you know, there's a dance about when we're going to have an intimate moment, how much we're going to talk to each other rather than sort of leave some space. That there's all this going in and out of relationships, leaning in and leaning out that we regulate in close relationships and in relationships that are more distant, that involves making us vulnerable or not. And I think there is a big part of our brain that says protect yourself, protect yourself, protect yourself, more so for people who have already had difficult experiences. Um, I, I lived in California for a time and there was a bumper sticker that I saw there that I've never seen anywhere else, but I loved. It said, now that I've given up hope, I feel much better. And the irony there that I love about that is that, that there's a truth there, right? If we don't wish for something, if we don't put ourselves out there and take a risk, we avoid the disappointment and the experience of loss. It's a safer path in life, but what we discovered by looking at all these folks across you know, eight decades of their life and now their children is that risk and making ourselves vulnerable is an important part of life. So that big part of our brain that says, watch out, you could get hurt. We need to think about the benefits. And talking to strangers, the benefit is that we get this kind of jolt of energy that makes us feel more alert, more awake, um, happier, excited about being at work. Um, It's the same issue, you know, we live in a weird time coming out of COVID, a lot of people still working remotely or hybrid. Um, You know, do we really want to come in and have this meeting in person? It's such a pain to do the commute. Um, When people come in and see each other, I have experienced this over the last year or two for the first time without masks. It's kind of an experience, right? Wow this feels good. I forgot what your whole body looks like. I forgot what it was like to be in a room with that movement that you have when you're talking. There's, there's a way in which connection buoys us and gives us energy that we forget. That's incredible.
2: Well, Mark, other than, and we're going to talk about the book and where to find you, but other than read the book, for those that are curious enough right now, and then they want to do their research, where would you advocate they start
1: based on the research
2: to move towards their best life?
1: Yeah. So we like to to think about like relationships are, are in the domain of what we call social fitness. And it's just like physical fitness that we need to think about using our muscles in this domain. Otherwise, they're going to wither. So it means starting with a kind of assessment. Where am I at? How are my relationships going? Are there people in my life that I value that I'm not seeing enough or that I'm seeing? But the relationship has been. Such that the interactions are depleting rather than energizing in the way that I would like them to be, and then you want to commit yourself to telling that person, "I'd like to spend more time together, Chris, I enjoy our chat let's you know let's let's go out and have coffee sometime, or maybe we can do it on a regular basis um, and so observing, reflecting, thinking about where to commit, and then using your attention and your time, which are your most valuable resources really work on that connection. New Year is a great time, beginning of the new year, great time uh, to think about who are the people in your life that you want to spend more time with, you want to improve that connection, commit to doing it. So it could be coffee, it could be a walk, it could be a Zoom conversation. Uh, Those are good places to start.
2: And like you said, a perfect time to do it, right? New year, time to dig in. Well, Mark, this has been incredible. Like I said, I can't imagine anything really more important. So for those that feel the same as I, the book is The Good Life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Mark, you mentioned your multiple day jobs. Where else, you know, do you write about this? Do you have things online? I'm assuming that there's a lot that people could dig into. Where would that be? Yeah, so a good place
1: to start is we have a website for the book, which is called uh, thegoodlifebook.com. And that will have more resources about the book and uh, also about my co-author, Bob Waldinger and myself, but it also will help direct people to a kind of foundation that we set up. So we set up something called the Lifespan Research Foundation, which is intended to, as the book is, to bring findings that are held in sort of academic circles and only read by a few people that are interested in that kind of scholarly work to bring them to a larger audience and to bring them in a way that can help them lead productive lives. So the foundation, um, we've started doing work um, that allows us to, to bring tools to people to think about ways to, to work on things that they're challenged in life. So on that website, you can see a link to the foundation website. You can also go to Lifespan Research Foundation and see the links directly. Uh, we have um, workshops and programs, and we'll probably be developing more material as well, yeah, depending I on hope reaction you the reaction do. I yeah. hope you do. We need it. We need Great. more of it. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. real pleasure to talk to you, Chris.
0: This week's guest was Dr. Mark Schultz. As always, the episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Dr. Schultz's book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, can be found wherever books are sold. If you'd ever like to reach out to the podcast, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. To stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we'll see you all next episode.